0: I'm Paul Irwin and welcome to the Pros.com podcast, where we discuss everything translation and interpreting related, including how to get new clients, areas of specialization, technical skills, software localization, machine translation, diversification, and more. Pros.com, helping freelance translators and interpreters succeed. Hey there, Paul here. Welcome back to the Pros.com Translation and Interpreting Podcast. And welcome, if it's your very first time here. I've got a really amazing interview today with Jay Marciano. I know I always say it's an amazing interview because, honestly, I, I really do find them all absolutely fascinating. But I think today's, today's chat with Jay is just something on... On a different level, I think it's just it's just one of those conversations that that when I'm recording it, I just think, wow, this is just this is just absolutely brilliant. It's brilliant stuff from from Jay. He's a very good he's a very good speaker, and he just knows this topic so well. And it's a topic, an area of translation. We're talking about machine translation that I think everyone involved in the industry should should hear about. And w- even if you have nothing to do with machine translation, which is somewhat hard to imagine in today's market, in today's environment. And um yeah, that's one of the reasons why I think it's absolutely necessary. I think everyone should listen to this conversation. In fact, it, it ended up being um, sort of <laughs> going on for quite a while because we were just talking and Jay was just sharing all of this uh, wonderful information that we ended up running over our usual uh our usual time, our usual length of about half an hour. So I've split this into two sessions, today's podcast, which is episode number 78, and next week's, which is episode 79. So, um, so yeah, split up into two episodes. I hope you really enjoy it. I hope you find it incredibly useful. And if you do, please, could I just ask you a favor? Please share it with someone in the industry. Please share it on LinkedIn or Twitter or or whatever your social network of preference is, please, um, I'd really appreciate that. So, here we are, Jay Marciano. Jay Marciano, Director of MT Outreach and Strategy at Lengu, has spent 24 years at the forefront of developing and applying MT. He has held senior positions at SDL from 2001 to 2010 and Lionbridge, from 2010 to 2020, where he was responsible for the global strategy of using MT to increase translation efficiency. He is the current president of the Association for Machine Translation in the Americas, AMTA. Jay presents widely on MT, AI, and the future of the translation industry, and is a leading figure in building understanding among language professionals of the power and potential of MT and other AI-driven technologies. Jay, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be here. Fantastic. Well, really looking forward to talking a little bit about uh, machine translation today, Jay. But let's uh, let's let's take it back a few years. Where did your journey in this wonderful industry begin?
1: So, so I've always had something to do with language in my career. So I started off right after my undergraduate degree, I started off as an editor. I, I wrote dictionaries. I wrote English, English dictionaries. Okay. In Boston. Sorry. And
0: where was that? And where was that? Uh...
1: Houghton, Houghton Mifflin in Boston. It was, okay. I was on the staff of yep. the American Heritage Dictionary there. Excellent. In some Excellent. ways, still my favorite job that I ever yep. <laughs> Rest, Just wrestling with language. It was great. Yep. It was yep. great. And then um, moved to Germany because I met my now wife. And okay, uh, she yep. wanted to study medicine. And so I got into lang- foreign language through the, the best motivator, a beautiful young woman. <laughs> yeah, 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 very good. Yeah. So, and um, so having grown up in New England, multi- having to speak multiple languages just wasn't a thing. It just wasn't part of our day to day life there. Sure, um, sure. And so it wasn't until, um, Liana, my wife, wanted to study medicine, which here is free in Germany and in the States clearly is not. And so it was an easy decision for me to leave the job in Boston and come Mm -hmm. over here. And then I started teaching language at the University of Bonn. Um, And then we returned to the States a couple of years later with two kids in tow. And then I got into language software. Um, And so then I was working on language learning software. So how did, comes-
0: how did that? How did that? That's an interesting transition. How did that come about? Are you are you a technically minded person, or, or you certainly are now? But were you were you back then, and and how did that transition happen, Jay?
1: So I've always had a gift for very logical thinking, which in computer speak you could call algorithmic thought. I've always had. Yep. I've just been able to do that, um, and so and so trying to um go from writing books about language to teaching people about language to then helping in the creation of software was a natural progression for me okay and yeah. and there at transparent language in Hollis New Hampshire is where I first got uh, first came into contact with machine translation and that was with an old rules-based system that transparent language had bought. Um, from from a software company called Integraph, and uh, and I just took a shine to it. I just I just got a thrill out of clicking on a button and having a translation appear. And it's still mm-hmm. something. Twenty five years later, that was nineteen ninety eight. <laughs> Twenty five yeah. years later, I still get a thrill out of it. So just the fact that, and we've come so far, right? In 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 the meantime, but um that's what's kept me going this idea of of that kind of the magic behind it there is no magic behind it but kind of the magic of clicking on that button and and seeing a foreign language text turn into a text that i can understand so
0: fantastic so would you be able to explain um in layman's terms how mt worked back then and perhaps we might then move on to how it works now which which presumably is quite different
1: it it, it is indeed and and i do this a lot i do a lot of outreach to translators i speak at the ata conference basically every year and it's always about mt so um so and i love starting with the rules-based mt because it's a very intuitive way for a translator To think about how they would go about the task of creating an MT system. And that is trying to basically replicate their thought process in code. So what goes through the mind of a translator and what tools do they have at their disposal when they're trying to translate? And so they have their knowledge of the source and the target language, They've studied it. They know the grammar or they have a couple grammar books beside them. They have a stack of dictionaries on the other side of them. And so they have knowledge of language of the source and target, and they have vocabulary in, in these dictionaries that they have. Yeah. And so our goal in creating rules-based MT was to explain to the computer how to recognize what a particular type of sentence looks like in the source language by parsing it. Just like you learned in in grammar school. Um, and then what that type of a sentence would look like in the target language. Yeah. So, you know, what what has to move around? How do you form a question in French and things like that? And so, and then you we came up with parsing rules and then what were called transfer rules to take the parse structure of the source language and move it over to the target. And then use all of that information in the dictionaries to provide the words and the phrases and additional information about inflection patterns and and things like that so that the very last stage was to inflect the language. So you'd already built the structure of the sentence and now you had to make it agree grammatically, all of the words agree grammatically with each other. And so you It was a very slow and painstaking process. In some ways, a lot of fun, just a great big puzzle when you were working on a new language direction, Um, but very slow. So at the time, I had a team of 10 people. Um, This is where my group was actually acquired by SDL. So we went from this small New Hampshire based company in 2001, we were acquired by SDL. And uh, this team of 10, we had computational linguists, we had programmers. And then we had at our disposal the fairly uh, deep resources of a language company like SDL, which at yeah, the time yeah, had 2,000 yeah. people, something like that. Okay. So we would hook up a linguist, somebody with native capability in the target language we were working on, with one of our computational linguists. And they would have a back and forth about the output. And then the computational linguist would try to encode the information that they got from the native speaker. But it was very slow. It took us about 18 months to do a new language direction.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: So that's what things looked like then. And okay, and yeah. yeah. It was a painstaking process. When you wanted to do a new language direction, there's some stuff you could recycle. You could use the parser from your English still. But these transfer rules, how do I go from an English sentence to a German sentence? Um, if you were to then Tackle Hungarian. You couldn't just use your German. You might be able yeah, to yeah. use some of it, but not not yeah. much. Of it. So every language was a was a project from scratch, basically. And what was the output
0: like in back in those days?
1: Oh, um, for some sentences it was perfect. Okay, but but those were short sentences, very very clearly worded. No. Deep nuance to the to the language, um, or anything of the sort. So it was used and used successfully for post editing for technical content, where the uh, source material was actually intended for this process. So the authoring process was done, uh, keeping in mind that it would undergo machine translation. So it was okay. simplified. Very interesting. Simplified language. This is why we call post-editing, post-editing, because we used to do pre-editing. And so there was a pre-edit phase where you would take that source material and and simplify it, basically, because a rules-based system wasn't nearly as robust as the later statistical and now the neural systems that we have. Um, So you had to make sure... That your source language agreed with the rules that you had written yeah, for the yeah, system. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, I never would have uh <laughs> learned something new every day. Brilliant stuff, Jay. Okay. So um take us a take us a little bit further down the track, please. So
1: then then we moved into the age of statistical machine translation. Now the idea of statistical machine translation goes back to the late 1980s. Uh, but there were two primary problems. The idea was to train a computer using previously translated material. Um, and it was very intensive program of uh, computing that had to take place. So there were two fundamental problems. The computers weren't powerful enough in 1988 and 89 to even try this out yet. Yep. And number two, we didn't start using translation memory at scale until the early 1990s. So we didn't have the data yet. So the idea was there, but the world wasn't ready yet for statistical machine translation. So we started using Trados and other tools in the early 90s and really at scale in the mid 90s. And then we started building up all of this data to use. And, uh, And then computers became more powerful. And so basically in the very late 90s, um, but more like the early 2000s, like 2003, four, um, statistical machine translation came online. Yeah, a lot of people put the data 2006 when Google Translate launched, and there, Google's first systems were statistical machine translation systems. And so, statistical machine translation had the great advantage that you didn't have this long. Development time for a new language direction. If you had translation memories,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you could machine learn. The, well, the computer would do a process called machine learning yeah. to create a new system, a new language direction. Now, I'm always amazed that SMT worked as well as it did, because particularly in the early versions of it, there was nothing linguistic about it. It was, it was, um, I would like to say, imagine you um, you had a source sentence and you had a dictionary that had highly probable translations for those words and phrases. And then and imagine those on scrabble tiles and you put them in the bag, you shake them up and you dump them on the table. Yep. And how whatever order they come out in, you're going to consider that a translation candidate. And then you're gonna do that a thousand more times. And then you're gonna look at the order of the words and you're going to take the sentence. You're gonna say, this is my translation for the candidate whose order is most likely to occur in that target language. So you've analyzed all, lots and lots of data.
0: And
1: you know that in English, the word the is never followed by the word the. It's also never followed by the word a or an. It could be followed by the word yellow. It could be followed by the word car, things like that. And so by analyzing all of these texts, you come up with a statistical model. This is why it's called statistical MT, Mm -hmm. for how likely it is that words and phrases in a source language correlate to words and phrases in a target language. And then how highly words and phrases in that target language correlate to other words and phrases in that target language. And so the first thing, as I said, is you grab those words and phrases in the target language that correlate highly with what you see in the source sentence. And then after you generate all of these candidate sentences, most of which are garbage, the vast majority of them are just utter nonsense, Yeah. you then look at the sentences um, whose word order is likely to appear in that target language. The funny thing, at that point, you're deciding what looks the most French without any, you're not looking at the source sentence at all anymore. Okay, so you can get a sentence that's the most, it sounds the most French, but it might be completely wrong. (laughs) And so in SMT, um, we had... You could have a train wreck of a sentence, of a translation. You could have something that, okay, it sounds French, but it has very little to do with my source yeah, sentence. Yeah. Um, now, it was still better in a lot of ways than rules-based um, in that we could cover many more language directions, Um and it was uh, easier, to, and, and you could retrain systems as soon as you had more data. okay?. Yep. Um, but, uh, but there wasn't a lot of linguistic work going on in them. That changed a bit as we moved forward, that that linguistic elements were added to those systems. But the real breakthrough came through with neural machine translation. It is interesting to note that the the methods used in statistical and neural MT are taken directly from speech recognition. And if you remember going back to the early speech recognition systems that took up all kinds of space on your hard drive, the, the first couple versions of Dragon Naturally Speaking were these massive programs at, now they don't sound that big, but they took up hundreds of megabytes, yeah. which was like half of your hard yeah, drive at yeah, the time. Yeah. And you had then you had to train them, um, and then they made a lot of mistakes. That was using statistical methods, very similar to what was being done in SMT. And then around two thousand and nine, when you know when when cell phones started becoming smart, when Siri started to listen to us. That was the first indication to the general public that, wow, something's happening here with speech recognition. My phone understands me, and I didn't have to train it at all. Yeah, And this was when we were using neural methods, deep learning, it's, it's a very different um, type of uh, learning that takes place, um, to do speech recognition. And... MT generally follows these developments in speech recognition by about five years. So sure enough, five years later, the first murmurings of neural machine translation were heard. The the first papers were published in late 2014. And then we saw a change that happened incredibly rapidly. Within two years, nobody was working on SMT anymore. Rules-based was long forgotten. And everybody moved over to neural machine translation. Uh, and the first systems really came online in 2017. A lot of people um, recall that uh, Deep, when DeepL came out. So Google was the first one to go neural. Microsoft followed quickly. Yeah. And then DeepL, this uh, Cologne-based, very small company at the time, had noticeably better quality than either Google or Microsoft initially. And uh, and so everyone is noticing something's going on here. These are not just, um, this isn't just one step better in translation. This is somebody got on the elevator and went up several floors in terms of improving um, improving the output. And so... With neural machine translation, it has something in common with statistical in that it's based on previously translated material. It's based on translation memories. Mm -hmm. You can also introduce monolingual data to it, both in the source and target language. But instead of what we did with SMT, where we created a learning algorithm that very specifically went in and did a type of statistical analysis that was programmed, where you said, go in and do exactly this to that data and build up a model about, as I was saying before, how likely it is that words appear together. Mm-hmm. With neural MT, all you do is say, here's the data, you go figure it out, Mr. Computer. Okay. So the learning algorithms themselves are very similar to any other Uh, neural network learning algorithms, whether you're doing vision systems, self-driving car systems, doesn't matter. And you present data, and you basically say, build a model of this. I'm giving you a bunch of sentences in English, a bunch of sentences in Spanish. Build a model that will help you in the future go from English to Spanish. But you figure out the The rules, Mm -hmm. they're not really rules, and you figure out the best way to do this. The way I like to describe this is by the game Mastermind. Do you remember that game? Um, So Mastermind was the game where you had (laughs) colored pegs, and your opponent hid four pegs. And you had to then make a guess at what color peg goes in which hole. And you had 10 guesses, is it? Something like that to to guess the right order. So um, what happens in neural machine translation, I'll get back to the game in a second, is that you introduce all of this data and the system builds up a model of both the source language and the target language as in and of themselves. And it uses a method that's called a word embedding. And a word embedding is it's a string of numbers that indicates the relationship that that word has to lots and lots and lots of other words in that language. And so you can actually graph, you can think of it as being a semantic, a value, a numeric value that represents the semantic content of a word. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And this is where things start getting really kind of mind-bending. So the computer can, on a three-dimensional graph, create a word cloud of an entire language, where groups of words that appear near each other in this three-dimensional space are words that have similar meanings or similar usage, um, but they're related to each other. And then it does this for every language that the system will support. It creates that kind of a model of the language. Then you start playing mastermind. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then you, and this is during the training mm-hmm. process. The Then you're using the translation memories and the the machine learning system gets a source language sentence and it's just going to do something to translate it into the target language. It's going to go down this neural network, making decisions at all these different points, and come up with with a sentence, with a translation. And then it's going to compare that translation that it created to the reference translation. So the real translation that was in the translation memory. And then it's going to say, geez, my translation was really bad. I'm going to go all the way back through the neural network and try to see where I went wrong. Um, and I'm going to make adjustments to what happened to to the various mathematical things that take place in this uh, network. And I'm going to make another guess. So you're playing mastermind. You put down your four pegs and you get feedback. That feedback is either a a black peg if you have one correct color in the right spot, a white peg if you have a correct color in the wrong spot. And no peg if you're just wrong on a certain wrong, wrong color. It doesn't even appear. So you've made a guess and you get feedback. And then you use that feedback to inform your next guess. Then you make that next guess and you get more feedback. And then you refine your thinking and you make another guess. You refine your thinking again and you make another guess. And you get 10 tries in the game. In a uh, neural machine translation uh, learning process, every time you go through and translate uh, every sentence optimally, is called an epic. And opto, optimally means that you, trans, you play the game once and you play it again and again and again and again until the, the system just doesn't get any better at playing the game but it could be many, many, many times that it translates each and every one of these sentences. And keep in mind that you've given the computer upwards of billions of sentences, okay? So it's gonna play this game for every one of those sentences many, many, many times. In other words, if you got to play Mastermind a billion times, you would have a very good idea how to play Mastermind. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so the idea yeah. of the neural network is that it learns the most efficient way or the to successfully translate these sentences to get the output as close as possible to that reference sentence. Okay. So that's wow. kind of a, a super simplified way wow. of explaining it. even that isn't that simple, yeah, right? Yeah. But that's what's going on under the during the training process. Yeah, that's, that's the awesome.
0: best explanation I've ever heard, Jay, absolutely, yes, absolutely you. brilliant. And you're, you're such a great speaker as well. It makes it, oh, it's yeah, really good. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. That's really, you're yeah, welcome. I think that's a, a lot of people are going to really appreciate that explanation. So brilliant, brilliant. Okay, well, well, that's, that's, that's been quite a journey to get us to that point. So <laughs> perhaps you could just kind of mention where we are, where we are now, where, where, MT is at now, and then and then let's have a a brief look towards the future. I want to leave a little bit of time to talk about um, the impact of MT on on freelancers on on work. Sure. I know you talk a lot to freelancers, Absolutely. but let's so let's just uh, let's cover where MT is at right now and and where it might be headed in the in the future, please.
1: So so anyone who's skeptical about the value of MT just has to go out and get any text and put it into any one of these big, generally available systems, Google, Microsoft, DeepL, Yandex, any, any number of them. And you're going to see output that is fluent, meaning that it reads the way the target language should read. It's not going to have, it never has, MT has never had typos in it because yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't. But it doesn't have fat fingers, right? So so, so spelling errors has generally not been a problem in MT over the years. Um, but you're going to see that it's a relatively rare sentence where you think that's not a good translation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Might not be a perfect translation. And very importantly, it might be completely wrong because it might have might have missed a negation. Yeah. it might have um, screwed up something in a date. it It can certainly make mistakes and uh, and it will not necessarily capture the nuance and the style that you're that you really need to have in in a in a very polished yeah. translation. Yeah. Yeah. Nevertheless, what I usually say is if you're a mediocre translation, uh, translator. Sorry, if you're a mediocre translator, head for the hills. Yeah, because and, uh, machine translation today, neural machine translation, particularly if it's trained on the on the subject matter, will outperform a mediocre professional translator. So, um, and then right now things are really moving quickly, because you've heard about chat GPT, you've heard about all of this AI stuff that's starting to come online. Now, I'm the president of the AMTA, the Association of Machine Translation uh, for Machine Translation in the Americas. And we're thinking of changing our name. Because MT is being subsumed into these bigger Mm. neural Mm. networks, these things that are called large language models. So, in fact, MT, as its own, being its own technology, might evaporate. It doesn't mean that automated translation evaporates. It means that it becomes part of a system that can not only translate, but can also generate text, can also correct text, can also organize text, summarize text, do all kinds of different things as yeah, well. Yeah, okay, yeah. and so we're think we're literally thinking of changing the name of the organization to the Association for Multilingual Technology in the Americas or yeah, something. Yeah. So so things are moving very very rapidly right now. Now these large language models do not yet outperform well trained NMT models. They do not yet do so, but there is no reason to think they won't. And we're getting to the point where these models are trained on what's called multimodal data. Multimodal means these other systems that I've talked about, particularly statistical and older neural machine translation, was only trained on language data. But there's no reason why you can't introduce illustrations. Or other kinds of metadata information about the author, information about the audience, information about the tone, any kind of information like that can be added to the information that these large language models. Think about process. Before. Uh, in their learning phase. The the way I like to think of this is uh, if you were to take a child and bring them to a room that had a pile of Legos in it, and they would would go into the room and you just say, I'll be back in an hour. Don't tell them anything. They would go in there and they'd build something. They'd look at that pile of Legos And they'd look at them for a while and, hey, these fit together. And then if you were to come in and say, hey, can you build me a house out of those? The the child would say, sure, and would start building a house. Okay, so that's a way I like to think of these large language models. They're trained on all of this information, but they're not trained to do a specific task. And this is kind of the mind-blowing thing. You're saying, "Here's all of this knowledge. I want you to process, and only later am I going to tell you what I want you to do." Okay, yeah, it's
0: yeah,
1: it's yeah. it's nutty, uh, yeah, right? Yeah, it's, re- yeah. it's and it's it's scary yeah, in a way. Yeah. Wow. So, so that's what's going on right now. So NMT will certainly continue to live on, yeah. um, um, but it's uh, it will very likely be part of these bigger language models. Um, And um, as we move forward, more and more information, including contextual information from an entire document, you know, when when a professional translator translates, they've read through the text. Mm, They mm, should have mm, read through the the text, okay? They know what's at the beginning, the middle, the end. And so when they're translating that first sentence, they already have an idea what's coming, and that informs the way they mm. translate. There's no reason whatsoever why, why we won't be able to do that with machine translation. Um, and not only that, but you could also have in this amount of information that these systems are trained on, all of the uh, translations that have ever been done for this particular subject matter or, or for this company's particular documentation, what have you. And the system will know, okay, in the past, I translated it like that, and it could have information about how happy the customer was with the translation, for instance, and it could then modify its translation based on all of this information that's in there. It w- it's really going to be a head spinning time uh, over the next couple of years.
0: So I think that's an appropriate place for us to take a break. As I explained at the beginning, we'll be splitting this into two parts. So this is episode 78. You can hear what else Jay has to say in uh, in episode 79. And I'm sure after listening to him today, you'll be tuning in again for um, for the follow-up. So or for the next part. So that's episode 79. In the meantime, take a second to check out what's going on over at pros.com training. That's training.pros.com. We have some really amazing courses, some of the best presenters and trainers in the industry over at training.pros.com. So take a second to check that out. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll be back next week. All the very best. Bye for now.